0: Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me. And it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You're really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. All right. Well, I have Alistair Crowley in Paris. This is what an a, excellent book that is. Indeed, indeed. So th- this <laughs> is your final, or is it? I think the last time we spoke, you said this would be your last <laughs> B- a Crowley book, but is it? Is it?
1: Uh, I think it is. Um, um, a Polish uh, Thelemite wrote to me recently, who publishes very beautiful Polish versions of Alistair Crowley, and he said, Oh, but you must do Crowley in North Africa. <laughs> And I thought, well, I don't think it's a, it's not the right way to finish it. And I don't think I've missed anything important about his time in North Africa. If you've ever read the Stephen Skinner edited diaries for yes. Tunis, yep. it, 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 it's a miserable time. Um, And in this book, I cover uh, his trip to Tunisia and Algeria with Dorothy Olson. And I think in the first biography, I also covered the trips with um um uh the poet uh Victor Newberg. Yes. Uh I think the the their trip to Algeria and the Coronzon affair and all that. I think I think it's well covered. And I don't I can't see anything to add to the um the account of the Book of the Law either, really.
0: Okay. Yeah. You, I see.
1: I mean unless you disagree. But I, no, I, I although don't I think do it, want
0: to ask about it, but no, I think because uh, yeah. you do visit it in this book. Yeah, I think North Africa as well. I must have spent eighty pages just on that incident in my John D book, so I think it's pretty covered. Um, the tell you what, I'm I'm just going to go to the stuff that fascinates me, and we'll okay. we'll do it that way, is if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Okay, um, is this
1: part? Of, is this going to be part of a series or what?
0: Well, it will be your, I think, fourth podcast, fourth episode right. on my show. So we've covered on the show, we've covered, um, we did Beast in Berlin back a, a while ago. We did, it is a while ago now. Yeah. We did uh, Crowley in India. And I feel like we did another one as well, just fairly recently last year.
1: Well, that would have been uh, Crowley in England.
0: Yes, that's right. So we have done four.
1: So there have been six altogether. I think six is a good, (laughs) good number Uh, for for Crowley's biography, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Well, so I'm I'm curious, actually, let me let me just start off with this. So now that you've done this series, did these why did you choose these locations outside of the obvious that they spent a lot of time there? Did they symbolize something like do each of these locations symbolize something specific to you? In the sense of like a theme or a period or a general uh, thrust well, of his no, life, then,
1: I, it it wasn't planned. It was never planned that way. It's it's just grown organically. I uh, I think that um, I was very aware that Crowley's life, in some ways, is like a a ribbon of dreams. To quote Orson Welles, "It's a movie, but it's also a comic strip." And I was thinking of Tintin.
0: Mm, that's right. You know, You'd Tintin
1: that. in America, Tintin in the Congo, uh, Tintin in Tibet, which I grew up with those books and loved them because they had everything: uh, adventure, color, uh, always an interesting theme going on, and and Crowley's life in all of those places. He's a, he's a whole. He had a whole life in India. He had a, a whole life in America. He had a whole life in Berlin. They, they are lives. It's, it could have been, if I was going to put it all together in a box set, I could call it, you know, the six lives of Alistair Crowley or something like that. <laughs> um, uh, the American one came about because I was having so much contact with America through publishing and through my contacts and uh, people I was... at. Uh, writing to, talking to. Um, suddenly America became a very familiar place to me. I started to feel connected with America in a way that I had that never had in my life before, because obviously as an Englishman, you you grow up uh America is always something that's imported and so you see it from that side you see what's on the crate you don't see what's in the crate
0: so when you saw what was in the crate what did uh <laughs> what were your thoughts I,
1: well i i mean obviously the usual um uh horrors at the some extremes but i mean i was deeply uh fascinated by the history yeah of america and um To delve into the past, suddenly it became real that I I know it seems odd, but uh, I had a very Anglo-centric upbringing, and you tend to see every everything that happens in the world through the lens of English experience because we were uh, we became part we became global before anyone used the term. There were Englishmen everywhere, and I think it was Somerset Maugham maybe who said. Or, or was it Churchill? One of the two. An Englishman has has the right to live where the hell he likes because he's a, he's a trouble to nobody. And he he I'd like to think this was still true. Of course, it all depends who's traveling. But there there is a kind of a desire to learn. Anyway, you, I tend to see things that Anglocentric way. And of course, I saw the American history from an Anglocentric way, even though I had relatives who fought for the Confederates in in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I think one of them was killed actually in in one of the battles uh, near Atlanta, if I remember right. I forget. Interesting. Um, Yeah. And and also, another relative of mine was the first person to map North Carolina for the governor, Governor Tyron of of uh, California. And that was before independence.
0: Uh, so I have were, I weren't. have uh, I have ancestors of in the same area at the same time. I actually have ancestors who came over on the uh, Mayflower so there may have been some uh, some communication there. Well, that's,
1: that's considerably there. earlier. That's 1620. Well, but this um,
0: and this later and then
1: Yeah, so so but, at, but, at the signing but, of the
0: Declaration of Independence actually, I actually have an ancestor.
1: Right. Well, I think um I just I sort of fell in love uh, with American history and especially things like the development of the railroads and the beautiful railway stations that used to exist across America, which were been destroyed. Uh, I think Prince Charles said about England that our developers had done more damage than Hitler ever did with, <laughs> with the Blitz. Yeah, And I think I, it's certainly true in the United States. There seems to be so little of the history of America that's visible. I know there's also so much, there's a lot, but Many very very beautiful, fine, fascinating buildings have been demolished, and when I did the Crowley book, I was very conscious that I wanted to rebuild them in my imagination. The old station at Minneapolis, and and right across America, uh, I I, I found fa- I found all that fascinating, and I feel I I felt part of it. I felt it strangely part of it all. That's wonderful. Um,
0: yeah, one thing I, it was a, one thing yeah. I noticed about um and this is somewhat embarrassing but one th- one thing i've noticed uh to my country at least one thing i've noticed of visitors from outside the us particularly from from the uk is they they a are much more interested and invested in the story of america and b know a whole lot more of its history than americans <laughs> usually do which is yeah. which is embarrassing and and but i i do i've been thinking about quite recently you know with crowley i think that whether the, this is probably not intentional, but whether intentional or not, Liber Oz, I think, is a better distillation of the the ideals of the founding fathers than pretty much anything published since. I, I feel like I, you I, can I, hang an American flag off.
1: I'm actually looking at it now as I speak to you, because I have it on the wall opposite uh, where I work here in the studio. This is the law of the strong uh, and the joy of the world. Uh, I have wanted to post this to the Kremlin, actually, this week. Um, <laughs> man has the right to live, what is it, live by his own law, uh, to, to live in the way that he wills to do, to work as he will, to play as he will, to rest as he will, to die when and how he will. Man has the right to eat what he will, to drink what he will, to dwell where he will, to move on the face of the earth. Man has the right to think what he will, to speak what he will, to write what he will, to carve, etch, draw, carve, build as he will, and so on. And yes. and you have according to Lieber Oz, which was written in World War II, of course, when we were fighting Hitler um, who didn't want anybody's will but his own, uh, uh, you have the right to kill those who deny this right of the free will. And um, it's a hard – and a lot of Crowley's friends wrote to him and said, for God's sake, don't publish that. It reads like a license to murder.
0: It also reads like the Bill of the American Bill of Rights, though.
1: <laughs> Be- but better, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I agree I th- with you.
1: I think it's more uh, philosophically consistent.
0: And, and than, concise and one-syllable words. I have that pinned to yeah, the top yeah. of my Twitter and it, account.
1: And it's not idealistic. Hmm. I don't think it's an – I don't think this is an ideal – uh, this is a, pra- it's, a yeah. it's a practical system of ethics.
0: Yeah, I feel in a way that the perhaps this is over-romanticizing but I don't necessarily think so if I feel that America is in a way the cream of the western magical tradition and that enlightenment masonic tradition found its flowering in the ideals that this country was founded on but then Liber Oz just like distills it perfectly. <laughs> I think it's one of the best things he ever wrote.
1: Yes, and it was written under the stress of war.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: you know, uh, it, the bombs were dropping all around at that point. Uh, it, it, he he was intimately connected with the war because of his contacts mm-hmm. and because he was bombed out of his own flat in central London uh, by St. James's there. Have you ever been to number 93 German Street? I have
0: actually. I bought, uh, 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 I bought there, I think at least when I was there in the early 2000s, there was a brewery beneath where
1: 93 Ale,
0: right? Yes. And I I, I remember because I bought a bottle of it to keep. (laughs)
1: Lovely. I've I've got one in the kitchen. Oh, nice. Yeah. Is it still there? Uh, I've drunk it, of course, but we've kept the bottle. (laughs) Okay.
0: Hopefully, the the brewery is still there.
1: I'm sure it is. Yeah.
0: Good. Um, yeah. Well, so let's talk about France. Um, Mm. I want to start this off by just asking a broad question here, which is about the French occult world in general, because this is something that I've thought about. well, it would be better to say that it is something that has a huge influence on what people think of as esotericism as the occult now, but at least in the English speaking world, don't have a whole lot of awareness of. And this, of course, includes people like Peladon, Pappas, the, the Memphis, Memphis Mizraim Rite of Masonry, which is extremely verboten by at least American Freemasons. You are, this is irregular to the extreme. And these of course had a big influence on Crowley and also on the OTO. When I've spoken to French uh, friends about the occult in france they their attitude is basically like oh yeah like we grew out of that in 1890 like that's nice Mm -hmm. that you're still into this (laughs) but i wanted to ask you about the french occult world and as you were focusing on it in this your view of your view of it and and how crowley found himself stepping into it
1: well i I, I wrote the other book, you see, that it really the companion volume to this one is Occult Paris, where I, I trace all the French movement and the so-called French occult revival. Um so in that I, I feel I've done that um told that story, which is the foundation. Crowley was a late arrival in a scene that had really Flowered and was fading by the time he got to Paris. By 1900, the 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 jism, if you like, had gone out of the French movement. And um, Crowley wrote some tart things about Pelada. I don't know. I don't think they met, um, even though they were in Paris at the same time. Uh, I don't even know if Crowley ever met Papus. Mm. I mean, Papus did have one went through one um, ceremony at uh, Mather's house. In uh, near the Bois de Boulogne. Uh, But I think he was out of curiosity to what Mathers was doing with the Golden Dawn. And, of course, uh, Golden Dawn claimed to be the true inheritors uh, of the Rosicrucian line. Um, So Papus was naturally concerned uh, to to make a connection there because, of course, he he and Peladan together really thought that they were the true inheritors. Um, Crowley was never very impressed by the claims of the French for primacy in occult matters. And he didn't get on at all with the uh the Martinists. There the almost no connection. In fact, there's plenty of evidence that the French Martinists um were hostile to Crowley very directly and but used subterranean methods to get back at him, like the uh the review of international secret societies, uh, which René uh, Guenon. Uh, was involved with. Um so Crowley, Crowley never felt he had anything to learn particularly. Uh, he never even mentions De Guetta, whose books I think were really remarkable um on the history of occultism. And um he he, of course, he he had the same root as they did, insofar as he loved uh, Baudelaire. And Baudelaire really is the the, the you know the, the wicked uncle of the French occult revival. Um, he made it exciting for young men to be interested in magic by talking about uh, this this um, going deranging of the senses in the Rambo sense and uh, uh, finding a hidden truth that that is uniquely yours and yet connects you to to a universal uh, magical power um, and the idea that one could access this power. Crowley absorbed all this sort of second, third hand through the Golden Dawn, mostly. Even though he did read a lot of French material, and you find him reading the works of Fabre d'Olivet, who is a very important figure. He, he read the foundation works of the French occult revival. Uh, he doesn't. He didn't uh, involve himself, certainly not with the, the the paramasonic aspect. He wasn't. I think he he always found uh, paramasonic orders a bit of a joke. Mm. Um, uh, he, he wasn't. He, he, he was unimpressed. I mean, you mentioned Memphis right, uh, which is a combined right. Um, he he ran it, I think, uh, because people he knew wanted that Masonic connection. And when he knew that the Theosophists were trying to get control of it, he he felt duty bound to uh, to make himself known. Because you know Crowley has this long-running battle through his life with theosophy, which he he felt that after Blavatsky it should have gone to him uh he felt he had the he understood you know he always felt he had a unique understanding of Blavatsky, uh, but Blavatsky was only the foundation. I think in my book Occult Paris, I go into the whole impact of theosophy and Pari- and Parisian occultism, which was enormous, absolutely enormous. Mm. Um, because uh, Blavatsky used to stay with the um, Duchess of Caithness, who lived just off um, Avenue on Avenue Vagram, which runs off the Place d'Etoile by the Arc de Triomphe. So a very rich lady indeed. I mean, she was incredibly wealthy. She had a huge house in Paris. She had another massive place uh, down in the, on the south coast of France, and she had property in England as well. And Blavatsky lived off her to some extent. Um, I always thought that uh, the Duchess of, um, of Caithness uh, uh, would have got on very well with Crowley, actually, if they'd met, and they had a lot in common because she was very much interested in Anna Kingsford's idea that the the, the true breakthrough of the new age, the new era that was they saw coming, uh, would was a redefinition or re understanding of the place of woman woman women in the world and that uh you know this whole interest in androgyny and the equality of the sexes and and the in, uh, mutual inter- interdependence that was really part of crowley's outlook as well um i mean he could idea he could idealize women on one hand as a spiritual thing but of course when he he met them flesh and blood he, he tended to uh he 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 he, the idealism uh took him away from the how can i say there was a clash between his perception of women as the weaker sex shall we say and uh and and woman as what she is going to become Mm. and of course the book of the law is full of this thrusting independence of a woman and um, he recognized it and uh, he, he tried to practice it uh, in, 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 this, in this way and that way.
0: Um, I've, I'm writing down some notes here because I want to circle back to Theosophy and also Rose Kelly in, in regards to what you were just talking about. But um, if you were going to c- come back to French occultism or, or Memphis Mizraim in particular, I'm interested in because um, it seems that you know certainly he he cites that in the in his version of the OTO and as being a continuation i've read the initiation degrees and they're actually really interesting there's tons of things about the planet sirius and odin and all these other mytho- world mythologies so i thought they were actually surprisingly really interesting um but of course they're also they also seem to have gone not into the english or you know the anglo american world but into haiti and kind of the the afro-caribbean world there still seems to be links to memphis mizraim so mm. because it's the the, the francophone world
1: mm. interesting yeah i don't i mean uh crowley tried to um uh reduce the 95 uh degrees to 10 um how successfully i don't know i'm I, I, uh, it's, uh, I don't think he regarded, as I say, I don't think he, he took it very seriously, hmm. uh, personally.
0: Maybe I should ask a more pointed question then, uh, and also broad in its own way about his time in the French occult world. What is it, if anything that he got from French occultism that he did not, That he did not get he did not have already or later get from the english-speaking world what did he take away
1: well i don't think it was from french occultism in fact the, the one of the great things that comes over in 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 the new book alistair crowley in paris is it's what he took to paris that's as interesting as what he took from paris um And he certainly, as I say, had very little to do with the French occult uh, societies that existed, what was left of them anyway. And uh, Paris, to him, meant freedom. Mm. It meant art. It meant tolerance. It meant social idealism. Um, It didn't mean modernity in quite the way that I think he had. I think Crowley had an extraordinary feeling for a, a modern future, a different kind of person, uh, a different kind of society. Um, obviously, Paris is always stuck in its history to a large extent, and that any new movement that tries to um, brush that away ends up very fatigued. You know, if you go to Paris now and you, you'd never have known that if you'd been there in 71, it was full of hippies and you know, dope smoking, uh, very more visible and um, a much more romantic place certainly than it is now. Paris has kind of seen that off. It tends to see, Paris has a way of seeing movements off, you know, from (laughs) Paris 68 to the 68 rebellion and all the rest of it. It it just sort of eats them up. And I think uh, it's a curious thing about Paris. Paris doesn't fundamentally change. Uh, it seems to me. I don't know whether it's partly the architecture or or uh, the, the nature of the French bourgeoisie. But um, Paris certainly wasn't going to change for Crowley. But then again, Crowley didn't change for Paris. What he found there mostly was art. Uh, his first experiences of Paris long term is he goes to stay as a, a sort of guest of his friend, younger friend, Gerald Kelly, who's establishing him or trying to establish himself as a painter in Montparnasse and Crowley rents a room opposite his. And um, he gets to know all Kelly's young friends, practically all of whom distinguish themselves within about, within four or five years in the Salon d'Automne, which is the uh, exhibition for new artists uh people who weren't necessarily accepted by the establishment yet uh but whose whose pictures were on uh, up for sale and he had a great belief that Gerald Kelly would be a true artist because they they seemed to have an awful lot in common didn't work out at all and as the book shows Kelly turned against Crowley in a in I think a very nasty way indeed mm. and uh Crowley was afterwards a very sarcastic and uh, not at all accurate about his friendship with Kelly at the time. And the other thing that was fascinating when I did the book was to find out that Crowley's Confessions, which is is in in some aspects, a a bit of a literary masterpiece, um, and some of the rhetorical statements and, and phrasing of it is quite magnificent. Uh, certainly on your first experience of the book. But I'd always thought that the Confessions was pretty truthful. Um, I think Crowley was generally an honest person. Um, If he... I thought that the account was reliable, but I found when it came to talking about Paris, between, especially between 1902, 1903, 1904, 1905, which is when he first was immersed, I mean, really immersed. I mean, he was going to Paris sort of every other week. If he came back to England, he was mm-hmm. soon off to Paris again. I mean, he was very—he was living there to, uh, almost, almost then, right through the so-called, Edwo- we call it the Edwardian period, the period of Edward VII, the last sort of dawn of a... a of a world that didn't quite happen because the First World War uh, destroyed so much that was building up in that period. Um, so what? Uh, I've lost my thread.
0: Um, well, you were talking about Gerald Kelly, and he—he's a prominent char- character throughout the book in this period of Crowley's oh, yeah. life. Yeah,
1: yeah. And um, what I found was that the Crowley's account of his time was extremely misleading, hmm. uh, obscured some very, very important facts. For example, he was engaged to a lady, um, the Honourable Eileen Gray, who was studying art. Uh, she's a remarkable woman, now getting uh, uh, real attention. There's an exhibition of her uh, in, in the, in, in the uh, Museum of Art in Dublin. Um, she, she's now becoming famous. She was a, a furniture designer, interior designer. She designed a house that Le Corbusier thought was a, a masterpiece. Um, really remarkable woman. He had a, a, a profound relationship with her uh which only broke off when he met rose um and and he was actually uh, he was engaged to her he even gave her a, a, a diamond brooch and that is a relationship that's never been explored in any book at all and certainly not by Crowley himself
0: do you even feel there was a reason to- that he he obscured it or decided not to <laughs> memorialize it
1: i think he he developed a view of that whole period that was drenched with disappointment and bitterness. Uh, Crowley was not normally a bitter person, but I think there are traces of bitterness over what happened to his marriage. And while his marriage started to go wrong after about 19... Oh, well, after their first daughter, Lilith, died after the walk across China, as he called it, um, which is sort of 1906. Uh, after after that, the the relationship starts to go sour. But as that went sour, his relationship with Gerald Kelly really plummeted, because of course he was married to Gerald Kelly's sister.
0: So I, I really uh, wanted to ask you about this period. In fact, I I, yeah. I pulled out a I pulled out a passage because this period is, I feel so critical for Crowley in so many ways, both personally and in the development of his magical philosophy uh, and personal spirituality. Uh, and it's also one of the times when Crowley is his most human. And I, I on I just highlighted one paragraph you wrote, which is the following year in 1906, after completing a family trek across a region of Southern China, daily invoking Adonai after the sudden shocking death of daughter Lilith in Rangoon, after a voyage across the Pacific, a journey across Canada to New York City, a return across the Atlantic to Britain, after psychological shock, illness, and convalescence in a nursing home, which I didn't know about, Crowley experienced Samadhi, and for the next 11 years, the artist died to the prophet, mystic, and magician. And as you touched on the friendship of poet, Alistair Crowley and painter, painter, excuse me, Gerald Festus Kelly died too. So this for me, I mean, this is he's doing his kind of completing his Abermellon operation, and yet this profound tragedy is happening in his life, which I don't know how much he actually wrote about it. So I really wanted to ask you about this I I think kind of critical point in the development of his character.
1: I think I think he he he, he felt the loss the breakdown of the marriage, I think was 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 a terrible blow for him. Uh the loss of his first daughter was a terrible blow. And uh, he wasn't a person to wear his heart on his sleeve. Uh, he was a Victorian. You didn't talk much about those things, and um, that was one of the. That's why I think I love this of all the Crowley books, of the whole collection, because I feel we're getting getting much closer to the emotional man, and much closer to the real his real personality. And um, also you can get that in the letters he writes to Gerald Kelly, because he never wrote letters like that to anybody ever again. Never the uh, very easy intellectual game playing. They are a lot of them read like Monty Python sketches. <laughs> they're they're surreal, um hilarious. He's he's his guard is down. Mm. And most of these letters have never been published before. And and the real challenge for me was to make sense of them because there are so many references that have never been explained what does this who's that person who's that person and they're just people he's he's meeting in the hustle and bustle of paris montparnasse and to trace all that was to create a completely untold picture of paris in 1902 03 and 04 particularly and it's a wonderful trip you know it's 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 like seeing uh, Gigi in for real life. If you've ever seen that movie, it's very colourful. Yes, yeah, evocation yeah. of Paris in 1900, but much, much more um, nuanced and and uh, sexy and and poetic. I think it's the critical period of Crowley's life. I think I think hmm. the the Edwardian period I always felt was his golden age. It's when he he dis- it's when he discovers himself. He discovers his real powers, such as they are, um, and he has to find out who he is. And it's it's agony for him a lot of it, and uh, people are often offended by a kind of arrogant sheen over Crowley. But this was all, this was all defensive. The guy was 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 uh, had suffered uh, terrible losses in that period, and he knew very well that some of it, a lot of it, was his own doing.
0: So. Uh, yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, there's a poem from this period, and I, I've tried to find it, and I can't find it. Where he's he's lamenting the failure of his marriage, and he's saying, and the death of his child, and he's saying, you, "I'm sure you know it." You know, "Rose, Rose, my head hits the floor."
1: Is that "Rose the decidua." Uh, I that think must I, perhaps, it's, yeah. It, it's the it's the final final cycle of rose poems. Yes, my head hits the floor, and it's just yeah.
0: unbelievably tragic, and yes. and palp. You can feel it just reading it and and so let me just ask why and because there have obviously this has been a subject of that people harp on all the people jump on this period also to to say well Crowley drove everyone around him crazy why did Crowley's marriage fail and also why did his child die one of the one of the things Crowley doesn't really talk about really at all if I'm if I'm if I'm right is his kids of which there were several so what what happened? What happened to cause the marriage to fail?
1: Um, I, the same thing that caused it to start. It was just uh, you, you could say chance events uh, gathering up at a certain point. The marriage, in the first place, was completely and utterly unexpected, and was regarded by everybody involved, other than the two. Protagonists Rose and and uh, Edward Alexander Crowley as 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 some kind of catat- catastrophic joke, um, a delinquency. So it's not like the marriage got off to a great start. In in many ways, he he was almost immediately at odds with Rose's parents. His, her father was the vicar of Camberwell, which is a a, a, de- a very handsome rectory in in London. And uh, was quite an important position, and his father had been quite famous, uh, and they were significant people in the, in the London scene, the Kellys. And uh, he fell out with the mother and father almost straight away because they said, "All right, if you if you have to, now you've married my daughter, um, you must give her a financial settlement." And Crowley said that was never part of my arrangement. That we didn't do, we didn't get married for that reason. He always had this thing that marriage and uh, uh, that sex, love, and money had nothing to uh, sex, love had nothing to do with money. If you introduce money into it, you were talking about selling somebody, you know. And he wasn't; he didn't want to buy Rose. Uh, He they loved each other. That's why they were together. I mean, that that thing about financial settlements has almost gone Mm. now in Western. European society although it's still active in in the east you get this idea that like the dairy the, the idea yeah, yeah what yeah. it what a what a it's like saying well well if you must take a woman you, you know pay, sh- pay uh, for it <laughs> you, yeah but all, absolutely but uh it, it the whole the whole notion of it somehow well now people pay
0: that, on now people pay on the back end instead of up front you know we just shifted it around.
1: Yeah, I just, it's, he he hated any any kind of constraint where that was concerned. He 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 wasn't just he didn't want to spend the money because uh, that's true too. Because Crowley was he was generous on the one hand, but I mean in the other way he was always quite careful. He could be quite careful with money. Uh, he certainly didn't he didn't throw it away. The things he spent it on though were things other people would think were secondary, like having books published, mm-hmm. printing things like that. Um, but anyway, but back to the point, why did the marriage fail? Well, the marriage failed in the obvious thing because, um, unfortunately, Rose inherited her mother's uh, alcohol habits. That's one reason. Another reason is, is they weren't getting on terribly well, um, especially after Lilith died. I think they both internalised the pain of that and... It put a barrier between them i think they they had they must have had they had trouble being together mm. um after that this was a lovely girl you know who he was so proud of and he he later on in his confessions written much later and in this spirit of bitterness i mentioned he said su- he suggests it was all the mother's fault she hadn't cleaned the nipple of a bottle and the ch- child had died of, 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 of an infection picked up in in Rangoon, but it, it depends how you read it. He left um, he left Rose to take the baby home directly to England because he wanted to go across America and get money to do a, a second Kangchenjunga expedition. Uh, so he had the plan to go sail to San Francisco, then go across. Uh, ca- ag- across the Rockies down from Toronto into New York. And he thought he, he'd just find people who wanted to finance an, a, a, a scientific expedition to Kanchenjunga. And Rose was quite happy to get on the ship, which he paid for, uh, with the baby and go directly back. Cause it was time of the British Empire. We had all these places were nicely linked by ships. And so she was coming back on her own with the baby. Um, and, uh, Unfortunately, the, as happened so often in those days, children—you know—the the child had very little immunity, and even though it had survived this incredible long trek across south uh, southeast China, Yunnan province, um, Lilith died, and I think that was the main thing. She turned to drink. And he turned to other women if indeed he'd ever stopped seeing other women as far as i can tell from their relationship she'd been married before um she was wanted money for an abortion at the time he first met her so she was pretty wild girl this rose she'd been to paris uh, she knew relatives of friends of Crowley's in Paris. They must have actually met at some point, If, if certainly in the same room in Paris before they finally met. But the, he, he, he was trying to get her out of one liaison so she could go off with another guy and persuade her mother that it was okay to do. And he said, oh, I, I tell you what, um, you want to get out of that situation, well, marry me. And I'll let you, and you go off and do what you like. That was the basis of, that they met. You, you have your free life. You can take my name, you know, and that'll get you out of this guy who wants to marry you and you can't shake him off. And then they just found that they, they were fell in love, which was very unusual because when they first met they were so shy together I think when on the first train ride they took Crowley didn't know what to say to her he, he just thought well she's got no education she can't I can't discuss Euripides I can't discuss poetry with her it's no good trying to discuss magic I certainly can't discuss uh the philosophy that drives me I'm not going to be able to discuss Nietzsche um and she and she's probably not really interested in golf um <laughs> what the hell He described her as an empty, empty headed woman of society, but she was also very intelligent. She had a kind of native, native intelligence and a huge sort of sexual charm. And on that level, they certainly clipped, but you don't, no one ever interviewed Rose, which is a terrible. Terrible sadness, because, of course, she is the critical component of the whole Book of the Law story. All of that is Rose. Why was his holy guardian angel called Iwas? Rose told him that oh, really? his name was Iwas.
0: I didn't yes. know that.
1: Oh, yeah. That okay. all came from
0: Rose. So that I really okay. want to focus in on, because you yeah, talk okay. you talk in your book, um, uh, you go into depth on this. And I think this is something that people have, you know, there's, of course, been a an effort to... Uh, resuscitate and look further into the the careers of female occultists like Pamela Coleman Smith and, and certainly Rose Kelly. Um, and you talk about in the book that she's basically the initiator of that period of transmitting the book of the law, which is of course the central event of Crowley's whole life. And that, I mean, it seems as if, you know, I don't want to get mystic and say that this seems to be the reason for their, their marriage, but I, I'm I'm super curious about your take on this after looking at this and what what role she played in that event.
1: Oh, uh, you're talking about Cairo 1904 yes. specifically.
0: Yes. Yeah. Or, or in general, oh, as a as a magical initiate initiator in Crowley's life, but that well, specifically, she'd, no, she'd
1: shown she'd shown no interest in magic. That's at least what he said. But a lot of those sorts of statements that Crowley made in confessions, which sound absolute, are not really very absolute. And I'm sure she'd have picked up. She was part of the zeitgeist. There was a lot of occultism around in British middle class society. And my grandmother, who was born in 1901, told me that you know everybody in those days was doing seances. You know, in, as a family activity, you know, gathering around the table, lights out, join the hands.
0: Life, life before television. That's great.
1: <laughs> yeah. Life before ter- television was an afterlife.
0: <laughs> More proof that uh, time is running in reverse.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think that was what it was. I think people needed in that age of science and and progress they needed to have a taste of the afterlife and i think so, spiritualism provides provide a so called spiritualism provided that so i'm sure they all knew about that sort of thing and i, I it's a perennial fascination we would all like to know and all the rest of it um so I don't think Rose was naive about magic entirely. She was, she obviously wouldn't have read the intellectual classics, but she might well have picked up some of Crowley's books and leafed through. And I dare say once she fell in love with him, she would have sat down and browsed through, uh, uh the things that he'd produced. Um, but he says that he gives an exhibition game of magic. Exhibition game is when you show off like at snooker or billiards. Uh, on a ball game like that, she said. He said, I'll, "I'll give her an exhibition game of magic by invoking the sylphs um, in in the Great Pyramid in 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 Cairo, Gizeh, uh, j- just on the edge of Cairo." And uh, it works. He can't believe it. This light appears in the in the in the chamber, the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid, and she's duly impressed. Now, that may have made more an impression on her than you'd imagine. Now That's pretty impressive,
0: doing magic in the Great Pyramid for your honeymoon. I mean, that's uh, in the days before reality television. That's that's pretty good.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you've got to remember also that the view of Egyptian mythology uh, and history at that period uh, in the circles that Crowley was familiar with, the thought was that the Egyptians had a proto-scientific cosmic philosophy. that that those That's the kind of feeling that was coming out of the translations of the pyramid texts, Book of the Dead, this sort of thing, was that the Egyptians were much smarter than we probably think of them today. It's become fashionable in the last few years to suggest, for example, that Egyptian culture is basically African-rooted. That wasn't the view in uh, Edwardian England or 19th century America or France. The idea was that uh, uh, that Egypt was the source of Greek culture. Mm. So part of the mystique drives, that's what's driving the Book of the Law. Crowley was also well aware of uh, the Askew Codex and the Bruce Codex of Gnostic manuscripts that had been brought back uh in the one case by James Bruce and maybe the Askew Codex which C were
0: I'm not, I've, I haven't heard of those before which which were those oh right in
1: 1773 um James Bruce uh, the Laird of Kinnerd, uh ancestor uh, descendant of Robert the Bruce the uh, Scottish hero of Bannockburn uh comes back from 3 years in Ethiopia and Egypt he went went to find the source of the Nile um he um this is before the French Revolution. He comes back with a set, a set of texts. Some of them are in Ethiopian language, Ge'ez, as it's called, which includes the Book of Enoch. It was the first time the Book of Enoch had been seen in the Western world for over a 1,000 years, and he brought it back uh, from the Church of Ethiopia, um, where it was part of the Bible in Ethiopia. He also brought back several Gnostic texts, uh, um, the books of Jew, as they call Jew, the books of Jew he brought back, which are Gnostic ascent uh, uh, accounts. Crowley was aware of those, um, of magical, as he would have seen it, magical literature coming out of Egypt. So I think that was in his mind as well. And he'd have uh, have probably told Rose about that sort of thing. And, of course, he arrives in Cairo dressed as as a Persian prince, uh as as was his want, Haiwa Khan, the beast Khan. So, you know, he's tripping actually. He, he's <laughs> tripping. He's he's taken Rose to Cyprus uh to, to Ceylon, uh Sri Lanka today, and they've gone big game shooting, and she suddenly finds she's pregnant, which is hardly surprising in their first year of marriage. And um and he says, well we we better well he he'd planned to take her to meet alan bennett in burma and they they may even have got to to burma it's not it's not clear but they said well we'll, we'll amble back and have the baby in the summer at burleskin his his country estate um in in scotland by loch ness and uh We'll have it. We'll we'll call in at Egypt again on the way back. So they they it wasn't a planned thing to go to Egypt at all. It happened because of Rose was pregnant and wanted to get into more familiar climes. Um, and so they 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 come back to Port Said. He he goes back to his Anglo uh, Egyptian society that was flourishing there at the time. I mean, it, the British were running Cairo really. And uh, there was the Turf Club, which was a British officers' club and high society club. And every English person who went to tour uh, the pyramids would end up at the Turf Club. And there was a hell of a lot of uh, of sort of sex scenes going on, and it was you know upper class adventuring. Um, Crowley liked it and didn't like it. Hated it, but yeah, he enjoyed the. He always enjoyed the the authentic experience. He liked going around the back streets. And uh, he'd much rather find some prostitute, um, you know, a, a local girl than um, flatter an English uh, wife who was quite happy to offer herself, even though she was married. Mm-hmm. Um, good old uh, Western Protestant hypocrisy <laughs> was very much the rule uh, for, for people, and especially in the hot weather, you know. The English in the hot weather do tend to behave differently. <laughs>
0: this explains uh, this. Expl- I don't
1: speak from experience. <laughs> I yeah. see.
0: Yeah, this explains uh, Benidorm and uh, and so yeah, forth. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. They get they get very they get very very frisky and silly. Um, I say they. You see that. Yes. Uh,
0: <laughs> having travelled uh, 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 not as much as Australians though, having travelled quite a bit and witnessed people away from their home country.
1: Yes. So they were all away from home, but Crowley actually always always preferred the natives of anywhere he was to to the. He always tried to avoid English society if he could, and and there's some wonderful letters he writes to Gerald Kelly about his attitude to the uh, English society that he encountered in Cairo. Now, you you must know that you will obviously know the story that um, she suddenly starts to say, "They're waiting for you," you know, and. He 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 probably thought, oh, well, she's pregnant. You know, she's partly hallucinating, partly fantasizing. He didn't take it seriously, which I can well understand. But also, he also is tripping. I mean, because he's got this, as we found out in the first biography, which nobody had written about before, he's got this lesion on his tongue.
0: Yes, you mentioned this.
1: Now that might've been a mosquito bite or something like that. that why would got. that have
0: altered his consciousness? You talked, you, thank you for reminding oh, he, me that's in your book. What would, I'm not sure why, why would a tongue lesion changes?
1: Well, because say it was a mosquito bite, for example. Um, he might've had a form of malaria and then he would be hallucinating. He says that he wasn't, he was convinced that the experience he was going through Uh, was not a hallucination caused by the tongue lesion, which would have poisoned his mental activity, but it had provided, by some means, the ability to hear the voice of Iwas. He makes that distinction. He didn't hallucinate the voice of Iwas. He thinks the lesion somehow affected his um, sensorium, which means his whole sensory equipment in his brain, uh, which was a subject, by the way, he was very interested at the time. I mean, ap- actual psychology and, um, uh, psychiatry more than psychology, actually. Remember, he meets Henry Maudsley on the boat between, uh, Sri Lanka and Cairo, most famous English psychiatrist at the time. There's a Maudsley hospital in London still going. Now he discusses with him whether, um, whether, uh, certain Buddhist trances could damage the brain. That was a subject that he was interested in. Uh, You must have read The Testament of Maudlin Blair, his horror story.
0: I haven't actually. I I think his Buddhist writing from this period is some of his his best and most lucid, and it's also some of the best writing on Buddhism, uh, in in my opinion. Well, he often
1: gives things away in his his fiction.
0: Oh, I have to read that then. I have a copy of it.
1: Well, it's only only insofar as it's what happens in the mind when a person's dead. That's a subject that was being investigated at the time by psychiatrists uh, in in Paris, actually. And um, he was interested in that. He wanted to know how much he wanted to know how much of spiritual experience is in fact just a mental mental experience. In other words, can you just find the right way of turning the brain on, and you will get a spiritual experience? I mean,
0: that's eminently rational and modern, and does not. I mean, that's. I feel like that's more rational than than many as I think you kind of touch upon, modern psychologists approach this subject, which is, I mean, phenomenal given Crowley's reputation. It's like he truly was, like, I, I don't know what the words are, but he was a serious individual.
1: I think that comes across, I hope, in all the all the books I've yeah. done, is that yeah. he was not really an occultist at all, uh, in the sense of wh- the way people understand that word and the way people often fantasize that they would like to be. Um <laughs> He was very happy to use words like magic, etc., uh, because he had he, he was partly as romantic and he was very boyish about the stuff. But the, the, his basic attitude to the whole matter was science, scientific, and he was part of the rationalist. Thomas Henry Huxley is his one of his favourite um, philosophers. Mm. Thomas Henry Huxley is the origin of the British Rationalist Association. So, if you cannot find a rational explanation for something, you had better be agnostic about it. You know, you 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 say if there's no rational explanation, then we do not know, and that's Crowley, Crowley's view. So he wasn't he wasn't uh, he wasn't a religious magus in the say in the way that say John Dee was, who's really yes. superstitious. John yeah. Dee is superstitious. Yes. he really. You, it would it would be very easy to get John Dee to be scared. I
0: think. <laughs> He, he was very credulous also, but this is something about Crowley that I think uh, it's, it's wonderful that you bring it out and should be continually underlined about him. I mean, I sometimes get the, the, the feeling reading Crowley, that he's, he's a bit like Richard Burton on safari in a cult land. And, Views it kind of from from an outside as if he's kind of like not necessarily looking down on it, but he's he's going to go there, cut through the bushes, and explain it to everyone. But of course, he ends up being the most infamous figure of the entire thing and becoming the uh, the the marketing symbol of of the entire thing.
1: Yeah, uh, and that is uh, is is a, a colossal misrepresentation. Um, it's just one of those things. Uh, he. he because he was quite happy to be called the great beast and all the rest of it. Um, he opens himself up to that. He invites it. Part of him, I think is inviting it.
0: Well, part of it him... ensures his, that people remember him. I mean, it's great marketing.
1: Yes. yes. I mean, didn't work all that well for him though. It wasn't, it, it, I think, um,
0: I mean, well, just, just, how many people do you hear talking about Paul Foster case?
1: Uh, well, I would have said very few personally, but right. uh, I I used to know somebody who was really into it.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean the people who are the the cognoscenti, you know. But it's like like everyone knows Crowley, even if you're not into this. So I think that that worked out well in a way, but not to cut you off.
1: Mm, I think. Uh, um, yeah, there really are two kinds of uh, occultists, in my opinion. There's Crowley occultists, and then there's Theosophical occultists. Uh, I think there's a great gulf between them. I, I used to know a lady. I wish I still did because she's very nice. Uh, lived in Florida a long time, and um, we we had really good just writing letters over the over the years. And uh, she got more and more into Theosophy and more and more into Hinduistic brahminism and more and more inclined to listen to the next guru happen come along and the more she started to absorb of this theosophical and uh brahministic take on everything the more hostile she was getting towards my interest in alistair crowley it's very interesting even though she when she'd first read the books She was very keen on it, and I watched the psychology change over the time, and it was very interesting. I thought it was, it was teaching me a lesson. It was emblematic. I don't think there will ever be a rapprochement between the Theosophical School and the Crowleyan School at all. I don't think it's
0: possible. What do you think? I I agree with you. Although I think the Crowley School will survive, and Theosophy probably will not. Um, What was the core of that psychological change? In who in this person that you're talking about who experienced this change of going into the more theosophical and Brahmanistic worldview and then becoming hostile to to crowley i
1: it's it, it's I haven't worked it out exactly I think at the time when it when it first happened, I probably had a very clear idea of it, but it, since I'm not really sure uh whether it was some fear it was the old demon crowley thing um or that I wasn't impressed by these gurus, you know? I mean, I d- I'm, I'm with Crowley in that one, you know, any, you can call yourself a guru if you teach some somebody something. I love, did you ever hear John Lennon's spoof character he created for a bit of fun, the Great Walk because the great work must be done.
0: <laughs> I no, I have not heard that. I thought you were going to say his original version of "Sexy Sadie" about the Maharishi, which is vicious well, and it, hilarious it, and it, angers it, and angers people who follow him every time I post it online.
1: Oh well, he, well in his maturity, in about 1978, he started doing tapes. Like guidance tapes, they were spoof guidance tapes where he, he create he creates a kind of da- he's like the Dalai Lama and he does a most incredibly good impression of the Dalai Lama. Oh, I gotta find be- that. Oh, it's it's um. There's an extract on it on the on the John Lennon anthology, which was a box set of CDs that Yoko released in
0: 1997.
1: <laughs> That's hilarious. And uh, it's called the Great Walk, and it, it's it's like should cure you of gurus and exaggerated respect for for um asian males who discuss the infinite <laughs> um you know it is a strange thing all, all american children are grow- brought up with excellent basic scientific teaching they're really good science books in america well i think i i depends, I the depends Ameri- what
0: state you grow up in
1: oh okay well, I, I, my dad always said that the American books on mathematics uh, for young people were much more accessible um, than than, than the, the British ones, which tended to be over the heads of young people, mm. um, because they're written by old dons, you know, who just never met young people. You I know? See, yeah. Anyway... Um, I think there was a good They as far I always seemed to be when I grew up, uh, a good scientific base. And yet the moment and it seemed to me an American goes to India. I, I interviewed Patrick Swayze in his hotel room uh, back in 92, and he'd just done a film with Roland Joffey, or was doing it, he was in, still making it. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Um it did quite well, I think. Anyway, he he'd gone to film it in Calcutta with Roland Joffé, and he just he'd fallen in love with India. You know, he'd started playing music with a sitarist and and all this, and it was just it like, why is it if the guy's got a uh, a turban on his head uh, or uh, an exotic Indian accent, why are you more prepared to listen to that person? You know. What is this mystique of 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 um, the East? Is it because they're just so much more plausible in the way they put <laughs> over what
0: really boils down it's to Sunday
1: school? It's down to Sunday. It's Sunday school teaching.
0: I mean, that's a good point.
1: You know, it, it's it's basic stuff, really. But if you if you pick up a few words like karma, you know, karma. I mean, it, it, talk about a joke. I mean. It's cause and effect, no more, no less. We have Isaac Newton. You know, hit yeah. the billiard ball; it will carry on until some other force stops it. That's karma.
0: Yeah, I think in our <laughs> last interview, you you or one of our one of our podcasts, you use, use the phrase California Hinduism, which I thought was hilarious, uh, and. Uh, I- I have
1: to be careful. I have to be more careful these days because you know you've got another generation coming up with with their, their sensibilities uh, 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 to all these things are not so tuned into the humorous as people who grew up, I think, in the sixties and seventies. Unfortunately.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately. I think they uh, missed totally, out on Monty. Total- Go ahead.
1: Yeah, missed out on Monty Python.
0: Yes. Yeah, but I totally, you know, I think we were discussing, you know, like, quote unquote, Hinduism, which really doesn't mean a whole lot in India versus, you know, Californians, fantastical idea of it are two completely separate things. And I will say that having been been to India I've been down that road myself for quite a while. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, and Crowley obviously was in the same camp, the, the actual technology of quote unquote of yoga is a big deal. You know, there's nothing, doesn't ha- necessarily have to be particularly Hindu or mystic or oriental as Crowley, I think very, very, um, very, showed very well. I still think that his instructions on yoga and what he took from Alan Bennett is is honestly the best writing on the subject, at least that I've read, um, in terms of demystifying and showing you how to do it. Um, but- Yeah, but that's it. Know. Was
1: it sit down, sit down, shut up, get out, wasn't it?
0: Uh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Eight I lectures miss, on I've, yoga. I missed hilarious. one out.
1: The one, one. Instru- the concise, initiated instruction is: uh, sit down, shut up, stop thinking, get out.
0: <laughs> well, well advised. I yeah, want to return to uh, Rose Crow- uh, Rose Kelly though, just so we don't lose the the um, thread yeah, of I'm that. Yeah, sorry
1: about that. I don't know how we got onto all.
0: Oh that. no, it's all. This is a podcast. It's it's all. It, it just goes how it goes. It's a conversation. Okay. Um, but R- Rose Kelly. Um, So you say, I think quite directly, that she is kind of the initiating figure, at least within this, when Crowley does begin to receive the Book of the Law. One thing I want to ask is, where does this stand in relation to... I hate when people ask me questions like this, so forgive me, but uh, where does this stand in relation to his involvement with Mescaline? And of course, he'd been writing about... Cannabis indica already, but I think I've spoken to multiple people, including Richard Spence, who wrote Secret Agent Six Six Six, that say that Crow, who have told me that Crowley was already, you know, steeped in mescaline at this point, and probably was using it in Egypt. I don't know if that's valid or not, but it's worth worth asking. Yeah,
1: there's no evidence um, that he was uh, using mescaline in in Egypt. Um, I'm trying to think of when he starts experimenting with it, what year it was. Um, I think by about... Oh, by around maybe 1906. Ah... I mean his his first big experiments with hashish, really serious experiments, are are in nineteen oh six. That's when he's trying to see what it can do. Hmm. And when he has samadhi, he's actually he'd actually um uh he'd combined it with cannabis. And I can't remember whether he smoked it or um ate it. When he took mescaline, it was in chocolate drops, um, and his big experiment is in 1916 at Lake Pasquany, in New Hampshire, or Newfound Lake near Bristol, New Hampshire, which I write about in detail in Crowley in America. That was when I think mescaline really uh, has has has, a, has he really getting into it, and. It, from from a from an analytical point of view but i think he also took it i seem to remember him taking mescaline in venice with leila waddell in about 1908 1906 could be 0708 around that time um again edwardian period i mean he must have been the only person who ever saw paris that year while tripping <laughs> you know can you imagine what it was like like Probably,
0: well, you get a f- yeah. P- probably, I don't know, Paris always uh, it smells very bad to me, so it must have been uh, <laughs> exacerbated. But that's my, that's my even uh, American lived view. In Cal-
1: Surely, if you'd lived in Calcutta, you would hardly notice Paris. Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah, but I went to Paris before India, so, you know. Uh, right, I expected yeah. it well, in India, a- not in Paris.
1: Yeah, I always remember the smell of the metro in Paris. Yeah, you know, right, yeah,
0: yeah, right. It's disgusting, right?
1: <laughs> it is. It, you can tell you're not far from the sewers, you know, that's for sure. Yeah. But, um, and of course, it, in the old days, it was mixed with gaulois, the French cigarette. Mm. This combination of a sort of vaguely sewer-like smell with gaulois. I you know, it was pretty, it took some, it took some getting used to, shall okay. say. So, what was the question we were talking about rose and, and,
0: so, and so well, I guess just to ask flat out i mean do do you think there is a possibility that drugs were involved in this in in nineteen o four in Cairo, or was it completely sober with perhaps the this tongue lesion playing a role in it?
1: If the drugs had been a factor in the reception of the book of the law, I think he'd have written about it he he didn't hide that drugs were involved. Um, with the samadhi experience, in fact, he he went to see uh, his friend George Cecil Jones and says, "Look, well, am I kidding myself? You know, because was was I getting off on 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 a high from from this little bit of cannabis I took, or or is it was it spiritual?" And 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 Cecil Jones reassures him. He says, "No, no, no, it's it's just." The, the, it's too, too, what's, what's happened to you is so incredible. I think at one point he says he thought that he would have glowed. Literally, he felt he must be glowing like a holy man, that he was, his aura felt so radiant, you know. And, um, I seem to recall somebody saying, making that comment about it that there was something, uh, something had changed it. It, it you know crossed over from as it were the spiritual into the th- physiological. Interesting, um, but I think if drugs had been involved in in that he would have he would have written. I mean there are some there are some mysteries about 1904. One of them is we uh, He made some notes, but when he wrote up the experience, you've got to remember he wrote it up from the notebook, which I've had in my hands quite a few times. Um, the book of results is the main. Little notebook about this big, you know, very neat writing, but he even says that he put ridiculous things in it for no, and he said for no good reason, you know, what looked like codes, but he said were just nonsense. I mean, that is an odd thing to do. But then Ian Crowley could do some very odd things. Anyway. Do
0: you mean in the Book of the Law itself, or no, 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 in around the book it. Of results ways okay.
1: in his notes from that period. Also, it's evident to me from the notebook that he was already experimenting with some kind of sex magic with Rose that summer. And he talks about experiments with Biel, meaning Beelzebub. And uh, he's he obviously got something off the Cairo experience that he didn't take very far. Um, he did do a ritual. It's all in the first Crowley biography. This is he does he wrote this ritual out, which basically is a sex ritual for him and Rose to perform, based on, you know, he is uh she's newton, he's hadith. Mm-hmm. So he'd got the notion, you know, uh it didn't take much getting really that the universe is is a kind of uh orgasm of two uh principles. Um as people say oh that's tantra you know well what tantra just means book um but the 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 the, no, the notion of uh a cosmos being born out of the collision of opposites doesn't strike me as particularly original but crowley saw these um hier- hieroglyphics and these images and for him he thought that it's obvious that the Egyptian sages had understood this as a scientific principle and they just expressed it in a mythology for the benefit of the ordinary peasants. And I think that was his view of religion in general was that religion is all based on a scientific philosophy, but it's put in story form so that um, the ordinary people can uh, get into it because uneducated people can't think uh very easily in abstracts.
0: It's interesting they, that I agree. It's interesting that he would have that view though, instead of the perhaps more cynical view that they are religions are control systems created by a priesthood caste for the, the peasants.
1: Well I think his view of that would, would have been uh, that's what's so useful about them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I see. Yes. Okay. <laughs>
1: But on the other (laughs) hand, you've got to remember with Crowley, it's always and on the other hand, because he always saw both sides. Of course, he wanted to see the end of priestcraft. Um, Unenlightened priestcraft was what he wanted to see an end of, um, where the priestcraft isn't enlightening the people slowly. It's deliberately obscuring them. So he's in favour of Martin Luther. He says... In his diary when he's in Germany in 1930-31, 30, he says, Martin Luther and Philip Melancton, who gave us our first freedom. Mm. You know, now Martin Luther obviously founder of modern Protestantism, along with some other and main major figures, but he made the important political move and stood out. And he says, the founder of our first freedom. So no, he. I, you shouldn't take my slightly cynical line too literally or his cynical line too literally. I think on the one hand, he could say that, well, when you've got a superior intelligence, you have the opportunity to make a, a new world. You can manipulate the forces that exist in a society and you can raise them up, but you're never going to be able to raise all of them up and you're never going to yes. be able to raise them up either quickly or altogether. So what you do is you you plant seed ideas th- that are accessible to people, mm. and that they will grow with them. And uh, I think I think all, all the enlightened uh, influences in history have always been like that. The, it, they all start with a kind of magical fascination that somebody's got an amazing power that draws you to them magnetically. The Beatles had it, did they not? And Um, and I don't want to be Timothy Leary there who said, who actually made it so explicit, uh, that it was an embarrassment, Mm. you know, I, I mean,
0: what was his line on that?
1: Oh, well, he took the Beatles as four avatars from the absolute, you know, who've come to turn on humanity, which is a dreadful thing to say to four musicians from Liverpool who were just trying to make sense of their experience as best they could. Funny, funny story. Go
0: ahead. Go ahead.
1: Well, you know the uh, the question is: is how much of the leery bullshit did the 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 Beatles actually take to heart? Because if you listen to Lennon's Plastic Ono Band album, the, which is the denial record, where I don't believe in Beatles and so on, um, he's had to go through an experience to get out of thinking of.
0: The yeah, Beatles I love that as, period. I love that. Yeah. Just, it's very honest and, and human. Uh, and yeah. I love his his parodies of, of uh, gurus during that period, like the Maharishi. Yeah. Uh, funny story yes. about that, though, with Timothy Leary. My dad was actually the first person to interview Timothy Leary for the local paper in San Diego when he got out of jail in the 70s. And he walked All directly right. out of jail with no shoes on and prison scrubs. And with immediately gathered a gang of, you know, 13 acid casualty followers and went to a restaurant where my dad attempted to interview him while he was holding court. And then, uh, he was kind of like my, my dad recalls him very performatively looking into space, talking about, uh, you know, the future and, and that, and then was looking to see if anyone was looking and noticing how profound he was being. And then of course (laughs) he he stiffed at the end, he stiffed my dad for all 13 peoples or, or thereabouts food. They just took off and left the bill with him. So that's, that's my, uh, my timothy leary story for today
1: that's great i like that story <laughs> uh and i i remember i used to know an australian journalist who interviewed him in the in the 90s early very early no late 80s i think it was uh, around yeah, 1991 that kind of and she said that the uh the the room had lightened up when he spoke and i must say i, I was bet. a bit skeptical yeah. Uh, you know but that that you know there was oh, almost you mean, like physical... do you mean
0: do you mean literally or just that people were yeah, li- li- oh, literally. okay well uh, i don't know about that
1: <laughs> and i thought that you know i thought it always will if you're a believer
0: was she on acid at the time
1: maybe <laughs> i don't know what she was on but i'd like to have been on it as well
0: <laughs> sure yeah uh well i'm i'm friends with his son as well who's been on this podcast several times Zach leary so it's it, and and uh genesis uh, who Genesis Purridge was, you know, spent a lot of time with Tim Leary and 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 really really liked him, uh, and told me about that too. So I don't want to paint a a wholly negative picture. And I don't think he was a wholly negative individual, but certainly uh, controversial in not altogether good ways.
1: Well, I I, I used to know Derek Taylor, the uh, Beatles press officer, who organised the Monterey Pop Festival, as opposed to the Monterey Mass Killing, that is the current uh, alternative. Um, and uh he he said that if you went to um san francisco in late 67 and saw the result on the street of turn on tune in drop out you know yeah you had to you had to say that either timothy leary is being taken well out of his own context or he's very naive
0: that was all my dad's opinion of him and 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 basically my dad blames Timothy Leary for killing all of his friends or turning oh. to hard drugs. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's, there's a case to be made there. Yeah. The, the article that he later published, the, was a cover story. and The, the headline was just Timothy Leary with many E's across the, uh, the front of mm. the, uh, <laughs> the front of the newspaper. Rose Kelly. Well, I, don't I think wanna... he's
1: like, I think he's like, I think he's like so many of those sorts of figures is don't take them too seriously. Yeah. You no, know? Um, I think that tr- the trouble is that that, that when when um, when a, when a, a thought form becomes fashionable, uh, it's to me it ceases to be interesting. Okay. <laughs> and the trouble with the the, the hippy thing was if you if you read, for example, Derek Taylor's book Fifty Years Adrift, very rare to get a copy, hmm. uh, which is about life with George Harrison and John Lennon in the in the mid '60s. If you saw what they were going through, they had a very refined and, and beautiful experience of, of psychedelia and idealism. When that trickles down to the the physical conditions in which most people live, and you try to live that, you simply hit up against reality. Yeah. And the, re- the result is mental breakdown.
0: This is still a problem today, I mean, because psychedelics have again become so fashionable and promoted by rich celebrities in Los Angeles and and thereabouts. And people forget that the world does not live like rich celebrities in Los Angeles.
1: Oh, exactly. Yeah, absolutely right. And, um, yes, I mean, I, drugs, drugs have always been the problem with Alistair Crowley, haven't they, with his reputation and his influence. Um, but I remember, you know, he's, he, he wrote some very harsh things against them. um, as well as as appearing to be give license. One of the things that people don't realize is he wasn't a heavy drug taker. Uh, it sounds ridiculous, but he even when he was at his most experimental, the, the measurements of hashish he would put into a thing were, were measured precisely. And he would only take a little until he got an effect. He didn't, he didn't OD. You know, he didn't have bad trips. Um heroin was the problem because yeah. it was the only cure for his, his asthma. He was recommended it by Dr. Harold Batty Shaw, the family doctor in Harley Street, one of the top doctors of, of London society. And he said, you know, if you've got bronchial asthma as badly as you've got, the only known – the only thing that I can tell you that we seem to have success with is, is is heroin, which was he got from the chemist, not from a backstreet dealer.
0: Yeah, I think that that's worth – that's worth underlining again, um, because I think obviously people have such a um, view of Crowley as a as a drug addict. Um, but that's a situation that people get into now today a lot, where they get prescribed opiate pills like OxyContin, and then they run out, and then they have to turn to street heroin, and they basically become addicts through the healthcare system. Which is very to easy be, to become addicted, isn't it? Well, it's I mean, it's, it's, it's freaking uh, uh, heroin. You know, it's like uh, I think yeah. William Burroughs put it. I mean, to
1: anything though, I mean, it's easy to get addicted to anything, which which provides a bit of relief.
0: Um, Well, I mean, opiates are the cure for pain, so you can see why people would, it's like the negative negative number that solves the equation, so you can see why people would become addicted to them. I I think Burroughs pointed out at one point, you know, people don't understand marijuana, psychedelics, things like that. These are means to an enhanced perception of life. Heroin is a way of life. And I think that seems to be true of uh, Crowley, unfortunately.
1: A way of life for Crowley, heroin. Uh, I think it's very interesting, and you, there's a a lot of this in in the Paris book, because he wrote a series of notebooks. They only usually talk about one, but actually three, uh, where he he deliberately tries to kick the habit uh, through some you know qu- quite clever uh, strategies, which. Never quite work because the the thing that's driving it keeps coming back, which is the asthma.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, if you've never had asthma, I do have asthma. Then, I've had it, and mm. uh you know, and I had a friend who had who was chronic asthmatic. It's a nervous disease. It's set off by certain kinds of stress. That's why he called it kanchenjunga phobia.
0: Mm.
1: Crowley did. It kanchenjunga phobia means that something happened on that mountain. Which upset his nervous system permanently.
0: Well, for me, I was a
1: bit. I'm surprised it wasn't K two phobia because right. Chogo Rai, because he had a far more physically demanding time, I think, on Chogo Rai than he did on Kanchenjunga. Huh. But of course, Kanchenjunga ends with with the deaths of, of of two of his fellow climbers, and and I think one of the. Uh, one of the coolies, as they were called in those days.
0: Well, for me, it's uh, always set off by cold rather than stress. So I wonder if there's something with that being on a freezing mountain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 but he did not recommend these things for other people. But I mean, the book of the law was telling him it's okay. But of course, look, the book of the law says um, to worship me, take wine and strange drugs. Well, it doesn't tell you what these strange drugs are, does it?
0: Yeah. And one thing that's been pointed out to me is it says strange drugs, which means ones you're not familiar with, meaning ones you're not addicted to. Yes. New ones. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to finally chase this point of Rose Kelly. And then I want to ask you about uh, John St. John afterwards, which I'm very interested in. Um, Mm. So just Rose Kelly, and I won't ask any preamble questions now. uh, Rose Kelly, what role did she play the actual transmission of the Book of the Law, and how significant oh, she, was that?
1: I think I think it's this has all been written down before. Uh, she she set out the whole scenario. She was the one who told him that he should go into the room. You know those three lunch times. Um, she even came up with the original ritual for invoking Horus, which Crowley said was magical nonsense, made no sense at all. And uh, she told him what it was. Um, she told him that the being was called Iwas. Hell, somebody should have in, uh, interviewed her, really. That was another thing I didn't mention about um, this breakup of their marriage. The book reveals, I think, for the f- first time in a book, that uh, Crowley may have had a child th- with a, with one of his girlfriends uh, and the mother came to, to Rose, uh, to their flat in uh, Warwick Road in Earl's Court. Do you know that story i don't ah well all all the the uh, the material is in is in the book on Crowley in Paris and uh, it does look like that might have been the final straw mm. for her, but the final straw for him was that she would refuse to to he paid for her to go to a um a brand new thing as therapy for alcoholic women set up in Leicester and I managed to trace exactly who was doing it and it was a guy from his old college at Cambridge. Huh. And uh, it, it, the building's still there in Leicester, funnily enough. And I think it's an old people's home. <laughs> but um, he paid for her to go there, which was an experimental thing on getting re- wealthy alcoholics off off the off the juice. And she she left without completing the course, so he was really he was getting very fed up with it. Yeah, I mean, he she she also had you know she she. It, Kelly, Kelly Kelly's view because he said he was involved with the with the divorce proceedings Gerald Kelly's view was that Crowley was entirely to blame that he was constantly misbehaving that he was adulterous and um you know it was not a proper husband my feeling about that was that they'd never had a proper marriage
0: mm.
1: <laughs> and but they loved each other and I think they took you know I I'm I'm sure that I have a strong feeling that she was also um, involved with, you know, had had, had flings of her own. Now Crowley's whole philosophy was, if thou lover wilt depart, you know. Um, So he would have allowed that, might have even been amused by it. You know, he had, there was a guy chasing her for years called Gormley, who was a doctor, a military doctor, who was an alcoholic, and he even invited Gormley up to spend the summer with Valeskin. Uh, <laughs> now that should tell you something. You know, I don't think he was interested in threesomes or something. It what do you was, think that was, was with? He found, he found it amusing. I think he found it amusing to watch this guy fawning after his wife,
0: and presumably carrying through with uh, uh, getting to know her better. Shall we say?
1: I don't. We don't know. There's no no huh? evidence for that uh, particularly. No. Um, I think they did. Crowley said uh, whenever he talked about it, it was it was agonisingly long death to a relationship. It, it had the relationship had gone past its high point. Um, I think the moment that Lilith died, I think that uh, they were on a downhill from then. But they saw each other loads, even when they were divorced. They were still living together. Mm. They they did love each other, and you know it, it just became impossible. In the, in the end, she. She, she i don't know whether she, she i mean she knew he was having an affair with victor newberg for example she called him Newbugger. <laughs> so she knew that crowley was bisexual so i mean how much she told her or how much she actually knew she i'm sure she knew quite a lot about it she was very broad-minded and um and more sexually free she wasn't a shrinking violet yeah. rose she was she was i'd love to have met her she must have been quite a character um,
0: yeah it's such a human and and tragic and humanizing story um and, and thank she you also for talking was a about clairvoyant
1: it. you know uh, okay. I mean, that's come out she they used to she used to do clairvoyant readings for when he was um got involved with the uh, Earl of Tankerville um she she did clairvoyant readings for him and his wife so He Either he trained her a bit or she just had a natural Mm. ability, but he regarded her as a clairvoyant, and that's why he was prepared in the end to listen to her in Cairo, if the story he tells is true. The notes that exist of the period suggest, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the pages have been ripped out, so there's Mm. nothing in there about receiving the Book of the Law at all. There are no notes on that. Do you have any sense of why… Why? What?
0: There are pages Why, ripped out.
1: No idea. Absolutely none. Mm. It doesn't sound like Crowley to rip pages out.
0: Maybe I Rose be,
1: might have been Rose. Yeah. yeah.
0: Maybe might things about her Rose. infidelities.
1: <laughs> yeah. It yeah. It's, it's. 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 That's very interesting. It could well have been. Mm. She did. I. I. Some of the letters that he wrote to Kelly. She. Her handwriting's on them. Um Elizabeth Taylor used to do this with with Richard Burton's diaries she used to write she used to read them and and make comments <laughs> in the diaries yeah interesting I think the re- relationship between Rose and Crowley was actually much richer than people had imagined. Hmm. I think it was a v- multifaceted relationship. Was, I think it was a modern – it was like a modern marriage. It sounds marriage.
0: like it. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like very, very much like a lot of people that I know, and I think that – I really wish this period was more documented because it seems to have been such a profound – profoundly creative relationship in terms of whatever that dynamic you know whatever that dynamic was producing the book of the law as, as well as you know such a fruitful period for for Crowley I wish it yeah. had been more documented but you you mentioned one thing I, I don't want to get away also is you you I hadn't heard this before you mentioned yeah, that can Cr- I
1: just say something about that just yes, quickly, yes, yes. Very quickly, yeah, because yeah. I think it's an important point mm-hmm. the book of the book of the law is crowley's subconscious answer to Buddhism. It's the rebellion of Crowley's subconscious mm. to Buddhism. That's what the Book of the Law is. If you actually look at what it's saying, he, remember, Crowley really was about to become a Buddhist missionary. He, he was fascinated by Alan Bennett. He was going to see Bennett for the second time, going all the way into the heart of Burma to find him at his monastery. Now, as you know, Alan Bennett led the first Buddhist sangha to the West. Yes. You know, and in, in 1913, he comes to London uh, and founds the Buddhist Society in London. And there's a Buddhist bookshop then in in in, uh, in Bloomsbury, which Crowley visits. Doesn't like the guys much who are running it. I'm not surprised. Um, but that's what the book of the the book of the law uh, target is 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 Buddhism. It's the it's the spirit of resignation. That he also saw in Christianity. In the end, his view, his his view of the weaknesses of evangelical Christianity as he saw it, as he'd experienced it through his mother and uncle, not through his father, that's something else. Um has colored his view that, and of course, Alan Bennett's view of Buddhism was very mixed in with Western mysticism as well, and even imported some magical ideas into it so the so for him buddhism this it's this whole spirit of resignation and his inner being just revolts mm. against this
0: i think you that's know? a very healthy uh that's a healthy revolt uh, do you is this just your personal feeling or do you base this on on anything
1: well it's uh, there's plenty of Crowley's writings when he takes on buddha uh there's whole passages of his diaries when he was at chefalu where he's having arguments with buddha <laughs> I mean, they're they're having it out, slanging out, and Crowley. I in the argument is that Crowley sort of gets the better of him, and he calls him in the end that old hypochondriac. <laughs> you know, everything is sorrow. Isn't that bad? It's like somebody who's always uh, perennially ill.
0: That's interesting. You point this out. I mean, like like the book, the law, still for me prof- packs that profound punch, and I, I've I've read it at times. Uh, where I realize that it's, ai mean, it's a profoundly liberatory text and it is also profoundly liberatory if you read it in the sense, not that it is liberating from like Edwardian Christianity, but like common new age Buddhist faux Christian miasma that we all swim in uh, to one degree or another that is just like popular occultism that's just around. It, it's profoundly liberating from that uh, and I think that my experience, you know, I've been interviewing people for what, seven, eight years plus on this podcast. And I've been involved in occult matters for over 25 years. I mean, most people seem to default at some point to a kind of vague Buddhist. Well, it's just nice to be nice. A Sunday school. I love how you put that. I think that's so on on the on point. And it's just like, well, what what does that mean? You know, like what that's what is the you know, Okay. You know, like. <laughs> And and the yeah. thelema Th- is so radically um, punctures through that, which I think is very healthy, even from a Reichian perspective.
1: Yes, and uh, it I don't know. You asked earlier, did Crowley send people mad in this period and things like that? And um, he might have sent the odd person sane. I don't know. Sure, but um, he he reckoned that Jesus. Or the figure that on which the Jesus myth, as he would put it, was based on, um, if there were if there was a figure, he'd say that uh, the world wasn't ready for the kind of spiritual liberty that Jesus was actually getting towards. Um, was what, what, what one thing he made the point of. I'm not sure the world's ready for Crowley either.
0: I don't think so. But what a an- what a gift uh, his work is to to those who are interested in it. It's a profound gift. I think that his comment at some point that he's building an arc to save civilization and is correct. Um, yes, absolutely right. Yeah. So, and and also, I I didn't suggest that Crowley send people mad. I suggested that people accuse him of this. Uh, but yes, I, that's I,
1: right. I I knew I knew I knew you meant that.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, but I do want to. Um, I, because I have not heard that Crowley was in a nursing home after the end of the marriage. I believe Rose was, uh, what's the story with that? mm,
1: Well, he had, uh, he had terrible, uh, problems with his throat. Um, he had growths in his throat, if I remember right, you know, possibly cancerous, was feared. Um, and I think he was just run down as well. And, and profoundly hit by the death of Lilith. Mm. He'd crossed America, he crossed the crossed the Atlantic, he comes back to I think the ship docked at Liverpool, if I remember right. I'm not going to swear to that, but almost immediately off getting off the ship he's told the news. He's hoping he's excited he's going to be reunited with his wife and daughter. And he's told, No, no, she died so many weeks back. And no one had told him. It was it was devastating. And he said he kept breaking down, breaking down all the time. And yet he kept still doing his devotions. Uh, very interesting. Wow. But uh, then he was very ill and he was at the, unfortunately, it's been knocked down. It was the Coulston uh, the Hotel in Surrey, if I remember right. And um used to be there. It was knocked down, I think, in 1973. Now, if we were in India, that hotel, that nursing home, uh, it became a hotel. Colston um, Park Hotel would be a holy site. <laughs> yes. where, yeah, yeah, that's where he he contacted God. You know,
0: where people would come to say, "Please heal my uh, my painful my tooth pain." Yes, and my yes, the yes. shrine. Yeah, yes, a shrine. <laughs> <to> guru <laughs> Sat, Sat,
1: Sat guru Crowley he?
0: As he Doing was, God. I think. Uh yes. I,
1: he was. He was the guru, but and and he wanted to do it with humor and without pretension.
0: And I think he was clear and honest and he his material is so phenomenally useful uh for those who you know, those who are not caught up by the demon Crowley. You know, he's just one of the best he's probably the best writer on the subject ever. By a long yeah, shot, he, I would say. By a by a long shot.
1: Partly because he's not writing on the subject when he's writing on it. <laughs> yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's, he's really trying to get you to go further than the the kind of conceptualizations that are familiar to to magical and occult writing
0: do you think that's one he, of the he, things that that threatened the theosophical side yes, of things
1: very much so yes yes I think he saw uh, they saw very clearly that they're cozy um we're just looking for truth truth that's all we're looking for truth uh, he, he 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 thought that in the end that they were just building themselves a, a, a house in their own image.
0: Yeah, I and mean, you may have had this experience as well. But just interacting with theosophists, is some of like the most humorless uh, yeah. people I've yeah. ever met, and and repressed and profoundly miserable in some cases. It's just not a yeah. not a good time. And no, well,
1: I mean he it's, gibber, it's just disgusting.
0: gibberish. Also, it's just like you read this stuff and it's like it's fun to read. It's like reading Kenneth Grant. It's fun to read, but it's like, what? Okay, like, what? What? Where are we going here?
1: Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's very difficult to call it anything. Uh, uh, Crowley called it toshosophy. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: um. Yeah, I think I think when the things that pe- people have accused Crowley of and still do in the press are, they should be describing theosophy. You know. Hmm. That's the, you want the crazy stuff, you know, that's, that's what it is. All religions are one, so we don't even have to just, I mean, if all religions are one, well, you know, why don't we have one religion?
0: Well, I think they certainly wanted one religion and them to be it.
1: (laughs) Yes, but of course... They then start arguing amongst themselves about who, who who's going to run it and uh, which. You then got the Western uh, Theosophists, and then you have got the, you know, you know how what happened. Yeah, uh, because Blavatsky, I think, was trying to plot the destruction of the British Empire through Hinduism.
0: <laughs> Why? Why? I, Why? I, I, that's an interesting take on it. Why?
1: Well, she was she was a relative of Count Vitter, um, who was a leading uh, Russian diplomat.
0: Uh, he
1: was, in, he was their, their foreign minister. Yet
0: another Russian hacker.
1: Well, uh, the, the, what she was doing was of interest to the British Secret Service because they didn't, tr- they had no reason to trust her at all. In fact, the Theosophical movement probably played a bigger part in Indian independence than any other movement from from Europe. Certainly, more than communism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and even fascism, which also had popularity in India. As yeah, you know, still uh,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. So um, no, I mean theosophy in the end destroyed the uh, destroyed the confidence that educated Indians had in what the English had been trying to say that there was, you know, a better civilization. <clears throat> we we have some we have something to contribute to your civilization, and. Blavatsky said, no, no, it's all the other way around. It's um, the West must learn from from India.
0: And that's very much still an idea that's uh, prevalent. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Did you ever read that book, Karma Cola? Yes, I in love India? that
0: book. I read that in yeah. India, actually. Right. I love that right. Book. A good yeah. place to yeah. read it. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think that's, you know, and yeah, I wonder what George Great Harrison book. thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Great book. Um I want to ask you about John St. John, because this is one of the most fascinating, I mean, your, your account of it is, is great. And this is such a fascinating and useful document because he's, it's, it's, you know, he's directly describing what a magical retirement and magical regimen is like. And it's one of the places in his writing where it kind of all comes together and you can say, okay, well, here's like a kind of recipe for how you might put this stuff together. Um, So I'm curious your thoughts about what he was what he was up to there and just your thoughts about that, that, that retirement in general.
1: Mm. Well, Crowley had this idea that, um, well, now I've discovered how you can uh, have knowledge and conversation with your Holy guardian angel. How can I get this over to people so that they can actually do it uh, in their own time in a modern setting? Um, And, and while, while engaged with a, with an ordinary, what was then in 1908, a modern, uh, I suppose, upper-class man's life. Um, so he goes to Paris and decides that, well, it ought to be possible to make uh, to have the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel at will. One should be able to simply be able to do it. This would prove what he got on the masthead of the Equinox magazine he produced, the uh, aim of religion and the method of science. If you could get the aim of religion, which is union with God, to use that word uh or the was that was that a, was that a
0: texas is. accent
1: yeah i know <laughs> uh I, I, if you could if you could do it at will then you've proved that the essence the essence of religion is 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 a fa- a feature of scientific uh experience in other words knowledge it's something you can know how to do and that would prove his whole point which is do what they will uh you you Find your true the true will of a person is to reach their highest potential consciousness, and the highest potential consciousness is symbolized by the idea of the relationship with a with a, a holy guardian angel. I believe the first reference, by the way, to a guardian angel is in the book of um. Actually, I think there's a toss-up between the Book of Jubilees and the Book of Enoch. I was only reading; hmm. I was only writing this. I'm writing about the Book of Enoch at the moment. Oh, excellent! Uh, and uh, I want to get to the bottom of that. Anyway, that it, it, goes, it's, it, it goes back. It goes back to this idea that, that a person has. There is there is a being in a higher dimension that has your interests uh, as part of that being's um, activity. Crowley would also say yes, and it equates with the idea of the unconscious as Jung expresses it in the psychology of the unconscious, which came out in 1915, which he read immediately. Mm. People talk about Jung today as if they've just discovered him. It's it's all been saying before. Um, I I have yet
0: to discover Jung. I've never actually read any of his books. It's kind of like uh, one of these things I purposefully avoid
1: you may be right uh I used to I I made the mistake when I was interested in alchemy of reading his psychology in alchemy 1943 and um, I wish I hadn't because I think it gave me a completely wrong notion of what alchemy hmm. was was about um anyway my book on alchemy <laughs> comes out very in good September just excellent just hot excellent. hot on the heels of crowley in paris we have yet more um infernal gangs on from the churton stable so yes what i what i'm trying to get to is what is he trying to achieve in paris in 1908 in these 13 or, or so days where he he deliberately sets out to experience what he calls adonai which means the lord and uh while, while eating at fine restaurants, although he put himself on a fairly rigid diet and drinking fruit juice and uh, not too much alcohol and doing uh, various yogic postures and concentrating, um, he'd learnt. I think it's, there's a lot of this in the Crowley in India book about what techniques he was using of uh, going through his body through the chakras. And uh, which means wheels for those who don't know, wheels. Uh, which is also the word I believe um, oh, associated with the cherubim. What's what's the word? Hebrew word also means wheel. Anyway, a wheel is really a kind of divine presence, and uh, you have the wheels in e- Ezekiel in the in in the Bible. Uh, Ezekiel sees the wheels, and after seeing the wheels, he sees the form of a man uh in, in on the Divine throne
0: oh is this this is the angelic rank is it Ufanum or something like that
1: no, no it's the origin of all Hebrew mysticism it's the uh vision of the wheels in the beginning of Ezekiel no nobody should even think of studying Crowley without having uh, traversed at least the first five chapters of Ezekiel <laughs> uh because if you if that's not or if that's not sort of registered it, a lot of it won't make any sense
0: what do a you mean term, by that specifically I don't I say more about that
1: because the great character the great characters and the the, ezekiel has he's by the rivers of babylon he's out there under the uh, pressure of the babylonian empire who've exported all the aristocrats from judah to babylon and they're pretty unhappy about it because their temple's been destroyed And Ezekiel is one of those responding to these being Jewish in Babylon and having lost your your entire what you thought was your reason to be uh, to serve God in the temple and so forth. And he has this vision in which, when he sees uh, a human figure at the heart of God, and um, Gillis Quispel, the Gnostic scholar, wrote about it. He said this is the the son of man is a person who's had this vision of, of some human form divine, as, as William Blake put it. Crowley had it in his, uh, Diana experience in August 1901. And he actually writes about the human figure in, in his, what's called the writings of truth, which is his notebook diary of those experiences with Alan Bennett studying Raj Yoga. Anyway, so he's learned all this stuff about yoga, and he's using uh, he's using yogic techniques. Um, I can't remember; you'd have to remind me. I'm, I'm two books ahead of, of what we're talking about <laughs> yes. at the moment. Um, but I, did he did he ever? I don't. I don't think drugs are involved in. in I don't think, I think so. That, no, I, he, he I reports having were, I, a
0: drink or two at dinner, but I think that's that's,
1: about it. It, yeah. is, is, that's the because that's the point. He wants to make sure that there isn't any contradiction uh there's no one could say well of course if you you are you were high yeah um and he's also meeting sculptors and artists and and lovely wonderful ladies in in the the best cafes in montparnasse many of whom became very famous uh later on um like nina olivier the 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 model who became the wife of leo stein gertrude stein's brother mm-hmm. and it was leo stein who Revolutionized the collection of modern art, and he fell in love with the girl that Crowley had been a lover of for quite a few years, and they married uh, Leo Stein and her, and that's never been written about. But in fact, he he got one of Crowley's best girls. Crowley always thought that when she married, he lost her. He always felt that about girls who, when they got married, that somehow he'd lost them. You know, <laughs> understandable. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. The sort of domestication comes in, doesn't it? And the uh, other loyalties. Yes. And um, anyhow, so yeah, well, that's what John St. John, why does he call it John St. John? Uh, I, I, I think it's a sort of joke on John of Patmos, you know, who's receiving the revelation. Um, and St. John is a, an English um, surname.
0: So it it also sounds John. like it also sounds like a drag name. I think it would be a very it does, good one. It does a bit,
1: yeah. <laughs> I think I think he's seeing I think John St John is is him is his idea of the person who's going through this. So we could all be John Saint John.
0: It's a great name. Yeah, there's a famous yeah. uh uh drag personality in the US named James Saint James.
1: Is that right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. T V. Nothing personality. new under the sun.
1: Yeah, He probably got, Yeah, I wonder if he got it from, anyway. Very matter.
0: possible, very possible, yeah.
1: I love that part of the book because I I wanted to give the reader the feeling that they were going through every day on the streets of Paris in 1908. Very interesting year, lots of exciting things happening. And you feel you walk the streets with him, you've sat in the restaurant, you've gone back to his little hotel room where he's doing magical rituals as well. Uh, you know, he's, he's um, invo- invoking... Uh, gods uh hermes in particular which you would expect because he wants a communication from the divine and um he's doing he's doing his his postures and and the hanged man posture he liked to do a lot of his meditation in which is lying on your back with the um your legs like in the hangman man posture in the in the tarot card uh trump and uh and bob's your uncle just when he thinks nothing's bloody happening And, you know, and it was, and it's hard work, you know, psychologically he's going through uh, through quite a lot of hell in this week. And then the breakthrough happens. And then he writes it all up and he sends it off to his friend general, uh, sorry, he wasn't general then, he was uh, Captain Fuller. And he says, well, can you write that up for, um, put it in the Equinox? And then he basically forgets it, really.
0: Mm it's it's a, it's a it's so, it's so, profoundly useful document.
1: This, I know but this is Crowley all over. He wrote so <laughs> many interesting things and he'd done nearly all of it before he was infamous I would hmm. say infamous rather than famous. He was always he never really was famous. he was infamous. Um, and sort of stuck is stuck today, hasn't it the infamy but he 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 wrote these things that a huge num, number of his achievements are in manuscript some of them not properly published yet or published in pirate copies uh my god he did the work yeah he did the work
0: absolutely um what what a privilege also to go back to that time i, I know that um yes yes uh, proust in the i think in his in his last book of his remembrance of things past has this epic uh beautiful moving passage where he talks about Um, life in Europe, and specifically in France before the war, and the life of the middle class and upper upper middle class society before the war, and how that will never return. And it's just lost. And and I'm wondering if you had that sense of Paris, and also maybe Berlin uh, in in writing.
1: Berlin was the same. Berlin was the same, a lost world with lost characters, lost personalities, and all destroyed uh, by war. You know, war is just destroys, um, and that's that's what it does. It 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 it, it stops whole movements. Uh, it's it's it, the the tragedy, really. You really do feel at times with Crowley's career coming up to nineteen fourteen that it's really going to go somewhere, and that he would have had, I think, the liftoff would have taken place
0: mm. uh,
1: at some point, but. The, those wicked angels again, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, what he called the the black brothers, the ones who want to suppress, repress. You know, if you look at the psychology of all the warmongers, it's all the the mentality is always the same. They they want to repress and control people.
0: You're thinking of Putin, I, I imagine. I,
1: I Putin, you know, the you know, in a long, long line. Yeah, you know, of mobsters, gangsters. People haters, duplicitous,
0: yeah, we, we liars. You know. We very much seem to be going through a, a, a depressingly regressive period, and I think that that is is for underlines how important what Crowley did was, and 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 that yes, and why ongoing we really effort. Need, we, we
1: we really need him now, and 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 I think they need they they need him in the East badly. Yeah, they I agree need with him. you they need him in Russia. And I think we need, we need it. I think he, we, the whole world needs, uh, the knowledge of Alistair Crowley. I, I don't know whether my books will help. I, I maybe they're too, maybe they're not accessible to some people. I don't know. I've, I want, I, I just wanted to tell it how it was yeah. as best I could. And, uh, in the hope that the, the, what I call the intelligent layman, you know, people are not necessarily committed to something, but, uh, they have a, a, a Uh, an inquiring mind with a a spiritual aspiration that may be undefined or uh, unformed and certainly uncommitted um that they they will see in crowley's life in its honesty his warts and all this wasn't a saint in the sentimental or catholic sense i he never did wrong uh he did he did lots of things wrong I many did a lot of things right as well and he wouldn't have done things right if he hadn't got it wrong the first time.
0: I think that makes him so so much more valuable than a saint if I can be sacrilegious I mean it's much better to have a person who shows you how to do it yourself than somebody to pray to heal your cut fingers to or something like that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Look I mean that this is it. Uh this thing about doing it yourself. Well how can you do it yourself unless you've got a system and Crowley is all about what he wants to tell people is you've got a system, you just don't know it and you don't work on it. Yeah, You know, you want somebody else to do it. It ain't going to happen. You know, um, if you want God to help you, you've got to, you've got to get, you've got to be part of that. You know, that's, that it's no good saying, you know, I'll sit back and watch while the angels do their work.
0: I couldn't gr- agree more. Well, we're unfortunately coming to the end of our two hours. I, and I, I would love to keep going, um, but uh, uh, that's perhaps a good note to wrap up on. Um, I would. Yes,
1: I don't. Yeah, right. I'd, I'd rather on the positive than the the news. <laughs> yes. You know, the, me, the 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 journalistic media.
0: Yeah, there's not a whole lot of good news these days. Um, but
1: there, there never was much, as I remember. <laughs> uh, but they. But the thing is, we had far less of it. Uh, there might I might watch, you know, one bullet in a day. Now it's twenty-four hour journalism. I think the, ju- the the journalism has become. You know, Crowley wrote that wonderful letter in Magic Without Tears about noise, and he was talking about the BBC during mm. the war, and he recognised it was all propaganda, or most most of it was. And he said in the in the future, he said people when they work will have. They will be listening to this stuff all day long, brainwashing them, brainwashing <laughs> well them, brainwashing put.
0: Well, and we, well that's seen. where we are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're going to get kicked out of the Zoom room. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I would love to have you back on when your alchemy book comes out for sure. Uh, and in the meantime, where can people find I'm, "Alistair Crowley in Paris"? Is the book? It is, I'm sure, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, indie everywhere, or from Inner Traditions. Uh, and where can people find out more about you and your work and upcoming books and previous books I,
1: I have I have a I have a modest website called tobiaschurton.com. and there uh, all my current projects are, are are there and um and also information about past works uh and there's music on it as well I think I put a, a three three of my albums on So there's lots to listen to. Wonderful.
0: Um,
1: So yes, that's all. Yeah, it's not the complete guide, um, uh, but it is to the books. I think you've got a good good insight there, and and they all link up with Barnes and Noble and and Amazon and and all the rest of it.
0: And of course, now now that the uh, the Crowley series is complete, people can read it all at once. They can they can dive in and do all six. Aren't Uh, they
1: lucky? Indeed. I wish I had that experience. You know? <laughs> I agree. I heard once. I, 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 day- <laughs> I wish I had had that
0: experience when I first got into Crowley, but <laughs> I had this view of him rather than um, Simmons or or somebody like that.
1: Yeah, well, we all had to go through that, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Uh, John John Simons thing. I know, but it, but it was a very readable book, John Simmons. But it, but it created the demon Crowley again, didn't it? Mm. Yeah. yeah, but um, I think you get it. I'd say that I wanted to do a clean. Clean look at Crowley, you just wipe away all the barnacles and all the accretions, get all this rubbish out and just show it as best I can as it was. Um, given the limitation, well, I think books are fantastic, real books are fantastic, but you, you've always got a limit of words. You, 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 you know. Nowadays, with publishing, they, they, they don't like books to be too thick yes. uh, because of costs. And well, it's it, fair enough, it's a discipline i i in an, in the same way that the old albums were great at uh, vinyl you had a you had 40 minutes to make a statement if you can't do it in 40 minutes pray for a double album right <laughs>
0: Well some of those double albums were phenomenal so you know.
1: Yes, yes, yes. But they wouldn't be now so much I think. <laughs> Although I just had a double album uh, Frank Zappa for Christmas. Oh, which one? Which I'm looking looking forward. It's it's the soundtrack of the the movie that was done last year.
0: 200 Motels or or the No, no, no,
1: no, no about him. It's a documentary oh, oh, about oh, him. Oh, okay. It's, it's about it's about it's over 2 hours long and it was really wonderful. You didn't have to like even Zappa's music uh although there's so many different stars, everyone should love something something of Zappa. But what is great is his philosophy of making music and being courageous, honest and and, and just bloody marvelous. I loved his attitude.
0: Yeah, Zappa was phenomenal. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's interesting how he also has become a bit of a forgotten genius. Although I think Frank Zappa of many of all the musicians of the sixties and seventies is probably like the least acceptable to, to younger people. Perhaps I can just imagine their brains exploding, listening to, uh, some of Zappa's stuff.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he he could have written pop songs. He had the he certainly had the ability, but there was no way he was going to, as he would put it, sink to that level. He he wanted to challenge, constantly challenge people, and that, I think that I think it's so admirable that there was somebody doing that, and also somebody who had the guts in 1967 to take the piss out of Sanjel Pepper. That
0: was great. <laughs> He, I think he later, he became a Republican in the 80s, didn't he? I think which really alienated the, the majority. Ooh, of I, don't, I, I think he did. Yeah, I think he did. It alienated quite a lot of people, but it was uh, Zappa being contrary it, it as must, usual.
1: It must have been very brief because do you remember when when, it, when the Soviet Union uh, fell apart?
0: Of course. Uh, uh,
1: he, he was asked by Vaclav Havel, the prime minister of of Czechoslovakia to be their represent their representative for trade in America, and the CIA got on uh, uh the Czech, Czech government and said, "You either deal with us or you deal with Zappa." So I don't think that would have endeared him to to uh, re- Republicans.
0: Well, I'm looking it up now. He described himself as a, a American conservative in line with libertarianism, but not a Republican. Yes, not a Republican. Yes, so I got that I got that wrong. That's Thankfully, very like. Yeah,
1: that's yeah. very Crowley, isn't
0: it? Very much so. Yeah. All right. Well, I see. Conservative
1: it's got, libertarian. You
0: yeah. mm. it, it's an underrated position, um, and and very underrated these days. Um, well, I see it's gotten dark there. So, <laughs> I I really appreciate this conversation. It was great. I'm looking for. I always enjoy having you on, and I'm looking forward to our our next conversation.
1: Splendid, Jason. Many thanks indeed.
0: Thank you. Talk to you later. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right. Hope you really, really enjoyed that. I definitely had a lot of fun in that conversation. Meet us at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic meditation, and mysticism, where you can learn all the skills you need to unleash your true self. I will see you in class. And until next time, hang in there.